0: Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency.
1: Hello clean tech enthusiasts, my name is Scott Cooney and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. All right, we're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. Uh, Today, I'm talking with Matt Moroni, co-founder and CEO of Raise Green, which we covered recently uh, right after it launched. Um, So we'll dive into Raise Green in a moment. And Matt... uh, uh, and i'm I'm of course Zachary Shahan, director CEO of Clean Technica, some, your occasional host on clean tech talk uh sharing the sharing the the position with Mike Bernard and Kyle field um, so Matt uh first of all, my first question would be how long have you been interested in clean tech? How long have you been uh sort of either reading about it dabbling along the edges or or been full steam uh involved in it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Zach. Um, I've been a fan of Queen Technica for, gosh, I would say, I mean, almost 10 years. You guys have been around for for quite a while. And I actually, I was, I was an undergrad uh, in environmental geochemistry. So I was on the climate change academia path and uh, I actually ended up going to Siberia and I realized when I was there at this point in human history, we really need to be focusing on deploying solutions Um, and so that's when i kind of switched into energy change gears and um, my professor at the time was a tree ring scientist which naturally led into a lot of climate change and human induced climate change and greenhouse gases and he actually helped launch an energy institute at my undergrad Um, so i was kind of helping him along with that and we you know i remember one thing he said in particular which is that the electrical grid is the biggest machine that human beings have ever made, and everyone expects it to be on 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And that, conceptualizing the grid as one machine to me was kind of like what triggered out my whole kind of investigation and, I guess, now career.
1: Yeah, I've, I've obviously moderated, I guess, probably hundreds of thousands of comments. I don't know how, over the past uh, 12 years or something, but um, that is one of my favorites as well, that when someone shared that kind of thing, I thought, wow, that's crazy. (laughs) Like like that is, that is true. And that's crazy. Yeah. We, we got, I mean, we we've been around for 13 years. Um, I've been doing this for, uh, 10, 11 years. Yeah. 10 to 11 years. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, I have to say I had no foresight for it. You know, I sort of got pushed. (laughs) I I got luckily blogging about green matters, like green lifestyle, just sort of, long story but lucky kind of just happenstance uh and i was deeply concerned about the environment and the climate since the late 90s uh so i started off focused on climate science as well uh and then i got sort of like hey you wrote about solar you should write on clean technica i was like oh uh okay i don't really i'm not a tech person (laughs) and then after a while you you should run you should run clean technica i'm like i'm not a tech person at all i shouldn't be running this but uh, It was perfect timing, you know it was two thousand and ten, and just growing with the industry has been amazing uh, so diving into so what what then led you to to start raise green and um, yeah how did how did that get rolling
2: yeah, yeah, great um, so after uh kind of realizing that I, I I should not be studying climate, I should be rapidly deploying all the technologically available solutions. I actually went and worked in the private sector for about five years in environmental remediation. So turning former factories, cleaning them up, making sure they were compliant. And what I realized all too often was that the community nearby rarely, if ever, shared in the benefit of the redevelopment, and yet they bore the burden of the pollution for the entire period of the operations. Uh, so at that point, I said, well, there's all these brown fields, all these contaminated lands, that you know, really could really effectively deploy solar. And so I went back to grad school with that in mind and really kind of trying to decide how could you design systems that would use the most contaminated, the dirtiest grids, the highest expense electricity, and use these sites that no one wanted or, um, to actually generate power and, and reduce the costs um, where it would actually have a lot of impact. Um, and you know that kind of dovetailed with uh, the, the, the Securities and Exchange Act uh, amended um, the, what are called the exempt offering rules. So you have public securities and you have private securities. And for about 100 years, private securities were completely inaccessible to all kind of normal people. And that was to protect um, the vast majority of Americans that lost a lot of money in the, in the stock market crash of 1929. But President Obama actually said, hey, all these private companies, all these venture funds are making a ton of money. How can we open this style of investment up. Um, So in 2016 the SEC actually allowed Retail investors normal people to directly purchase um, investments from small companies on websites that were licensed by the government. So raise green got a license for that after two years, after a year of <laughs> private legal work. And we said, we only want to apply this to clean energy projects, um, or social impact projects. And we will actually not just be a place where people can find these investments, but they can actually create them themselves with, uh, our guidance and our templates and our new software.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I should have asked your part how to pronounce your partner's name. Your partner Franz uh, <laughs> Franz
2: It's fra- Oh, that was good. Yeah, that was perfect.
1: I lived in that region for decades. <laughs> uh, so he, he 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 worked in the Obama administration. When you started talking about the Brownfield development, uh, that uh, immediately brought me back to some coverage we did during the Obama administration of of good work uh, trying to to help. Um, Get more clean energy projects on brownfields. Was he? He was he involved in that in the Obama administration or or other matters?
2: Um, he was. I he was. He worked at the USDA. Um, he worked at the Council on Environmental Quality, and he finished his tenure uh, in the Obama administration. Actually, working at the State Department, and was there in Paris when they banged the gavel and announced the Paris uh, uh, Agreement on climate change um he was actually on the negotiating team so um i think both um you know him and me we come at clean energy and climate solutions from you know him very top down me you know very from the (laughs) from the contaminated ground up right and what we realized was you know there were below the grassroots yeah (laughs) below below the (laughs) grassroots (laughs) And, you know, I think what we realized is, you know, look, there are millions of people marching in the streets for climate solutions, for social and environmental justice, but what do you actually do at the end of the march? Uh, It's very difficult, and I think many millions of people feel hopeless or powerless um, in the face of such a global, seemingly insurmountable issue. Um, And that's really why we created Raise Green, was you know, if you're one of the millions of people that actually want a better planet, you can come and invest in a project that will make that happen um, if it's successful, right? And a lot of these projects, they wouldn't exist otherwise. Um, We're really trying to get projects that are passed over by traditional sources of financing. Um, You know, a company like Tesla, which has done such incredible work standardizing the deployment of solar um, on residential, or someone like Sunrun, for example, these have revolutionized the solar and you've done some excellent coverage about the reduction in costs that have occurred uh, in parallel to that similarly on the utility scale size and now on the lower smaller you know commercial building size um, you have plenty of developers but all too often this gets built on these types of projects get built on WalMarts. they get built on office maxes because they have good credit as off takers. And so what ends up happening is, you know, no one wants to fund solar on the homeless shelter. No one wants to fund solar on, <laughs> on schools uh, or, um, or just small businesses or, 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 or housing um, complexes. And that's because of the complexity. But the beauty of something like crowdfunding, you know, the, the people who are bringing the solutions are the people closest to the problems. So although a traditional developer from say New York may not want to bother with a 100 kilowatt solar array on top of a low-income housing on in Pittsburgh, um, someone who lives in that housing and knows everyone, you know, on the board and who <laughs> works with people in the city is willing to do that. Um, that's our thesis. We think that you know, flipping solar is the equivalent of flipping houses in the 20th century. Uh-huh. Um, and that's really what we're facilitating a platform to create now.
1: Well, I'll come back to that in, in a moment as well. But uh, I'm curious, because when, when I s- got your news and wrote the article, uh, started writing the article about Raise Green, um, of course, I, I thought, hey, we covered that that SEC decision allowing crowdfunding when was that? <laughs> and I had to look it up and it was nearly five years ago. And, um, and mm-hmm. I was very really surprised that not, that I haven't seen much come out of it. Uh, but, but there was also around that, that time, or I, I'm not, not remembering the time frame perfectly now, but we covered mosaic, solar mosaic a while back. Yeah. Um, yeah. I used to do this similar kind of thing there was one or two others that tried to get off the ground, but, but it's been a long, it had been a long time since I had even, seen anyone talking about this concept again can you say a little bit about and although sec made it legal um can you say a little bit about what the challenge is with doing what you're doing and why why we why you're the first one to come out here and and do this basically
2: Yeah, well, I think definitely we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, you know, Solar Mosaic was a, a huge inspiration to us. And, and we've talked to many people who have, you know, been integral at the beginning there to kind of glean what insights we can. Um, and they're still doing quite well. They had a s- small shift in their business model to kind of moving from individual projects, uh, allowing non-accredited or retail investors, and now they're kind of focused on somewhat larger accredited investors and um, in more of a fund style approach of many projects. I think that's a natural evolution and it's been very successful for them. They've done a lot of good work. Um, in terms of the growth of regulation crowdfunding. You know, I would argue that it's doing quite well. In fact, you know, as of there was just the three year review um, of the regulation um, and they reported little to no incidents of fraud. They reported hundreds of millions of dollars of capital raises um, by retail investors into the private markets. So, you know, this is, this is a space that is growing quite fast. It is young. It is very young. Uh, you know, I just to underscore the point I made earlier, this market didn't exist from 1929 onward. Um, and so it is uh, almost a full turn in how the United States is, is viewing the securities laws. Um, folks like Mosaic, they relied on, a state securities exemption. So in the initial stages okay. of Mosaic, only residents from California could invest, okay. um, which I think um, potentially deterred some of their momentum after they saturated the early adopters. Um, and if I think they just kind of were, were too ahead of their time. And only now has the regulatory climate opened up enough to allow you know, a second attempt on at a national scale which before was limited to only one state at a time.
1: Yeah. So, well, talking about who you focus on too. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, as you, as you, you probably, I'm sure you saw, I recently wrote a couple of articles about how much the price of solar has dropped um, again in recent years. And it was funny cause I, I wrote an article in 2014 <laughs> feels like yesterday uh, about how the 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 cost of solar that you have in your head is probably two to one hundred times higher than it, than it should be, because the cost of solar had dropped so much in recent in years prior that uh, you know if you had gotten a quote in two thousand ten, it would be way higher than the price of solar in two thousand fourteen. And I knew the price of solar kept dropping, but when I returned to the topic uh, this past couple of weeks, I was I was myself shocked. I f- I found out that I had basically succumbed to the psychological a problem or error that I had written about six years ago, which is like, I just didn't realize how much it had dropped in the past few years. Um, So the, the good news is it's really become a lot. I mean, I think it's become significantly, significantly more accessible, like by a big chunk for a big chunk of the population than it was just four or five years ago. How does that influence this kind of community focus that you have? This kind of, you know, uh, fund locally focus versus, yeah, like, like we talked, like you talked about the bigger projects of the past that were, you know, basically targeted at probably a different audience, different investment audience.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm like you. I'm, I'm shocked to see how, how fast the prices have uh, dropped. And, you know, now you have massive, massive institutional investment in solar. It's no longer a fringe, you know, hippie investment for the food co-op. It is, uh, you know, billions of dollars a year are flowing into this infrastructure and is becoming, you know, an attractive asset class for a balanced portfolio, uh, renewable energy project finance with its predictable payback. Uh, I think that, you know, it is Tipping the scale and making people think about it more, I think it's an astute point, Zach, that you mentioned. You know, unless you're checking this every day, you're not going to notice. Uh, human beings really struggle <laughs> with exponential. Uh, we 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 think in linearities, so it certainly, you know, someone says, "Oh, it was seven dollars ten years ago. It's probably six forty
1: now." Right. And even but, just static. You know, it, I mean, we're just static too. You know, you 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 learn something, and it just stays there in that position. It, you don't even you don't even sometimes apply a linear trend to it. You know.
2: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, I think, I think you know, we're seeing on average somewhere about you know for small systems on for a casual installer like a local installer, you know, somewhere around three to three fifty, um, depending on how rural. Uh, per watt. Uh, There's still a big price disparity um, that starts to tip, you know, at megawatt, two megawatt plus. Um, You know, you can get those for below a dollar a watt. Um, But for a 50 kilowatt project, you know, unless you are a very good off taker with very good credit, you're still looking at, you know, somewhere to 225 at least uh, per watt. So I think the economics are becoming more favorable. Um, you also have the the step down of the investment tax credit, which is also kind of serving a somewhat balancing to that price drop. But I think that prices will continue to drop um, and it will ultimately be keep becoming uh, you know more attractive, uh, which I think is why we're seeing you know municipalities, cities. Uh, small businesses, schools, everyone kind of is starting to think about it now, but I think there is, is a massive, um, you know, information gap. And that's really, you know, part of our efforts as well is, you know, education that, you know, local ownership, local profit is, is actually an option. Um, there's an increasing familiarity with, you know, pure community solar, where you build a array in a field because you can't put it on top of your rented apartment, you subscribe like you would subscribe to a phone bill. Um, that has been growing really rapidly. I still think it's underdeveloped because you know the the most skilled developers are still focusing on the utility scale projects or the kind of Walmart style off takers. Um, the missing piece in the community solar model in, in my estimation is actually to allow local ownership as well. So if I buy a, a subscription for, you know, reduced power. Uh, why can't I also make that an investment and, and fund part of the actual capital outlay for the project so that when I pay my bills. I'm actually partially paying myself and all of the other like minded people uh, that wanted to make this happen. You yeah. know, most most community solar developers still use traditional sources of debt and equity when, you know, you may get a 5-10% discount on your electricity bill. But ultimately, when you pay that bill, that capital is leaving your community and it continues to concentrate amongst those financiers.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's always there's there's options for you know, I live in an apartment, you know, there's options for uh, getting a hundred percent renewable energy or investing in, in renewable energy, but you're always wondering like, well, where is this project? What is this project? Uh, you know, it, where's my money really going? And there's definitely a, would be a huge appeal. I, I think to, Hey, the project is right here in your region. You can even visit if you, if you want, you know, there's kind of, it's, it all of a sudden makes a big strong link between the abstract and the real world, uh, for, for someone. Um, And yeah, it just becomes much more appealing if if it's available. So, well, a couple of things I want to touch on with that. I mean, there's a quote in this article, in this Cheddar article about you guys. Um, It's what you've been talking about, but I just want to emphasize the, the last part here. It says, there have been a handful of other efforts to bring crowdfunding to renewable energy, but Raise Green is the first of its kind for small community solar projects that also serve in areas with low investment. So this is what you're talking about different, you know, but can you focus a little bit more on just um, some of the areas of that have had low investment sort of been neglected that you guys are able to, to focus money into?
2: Yeah, sure thing. I think that's one of the most powering and inspiring aspects of what the Securities and Exchange Commission did by creating regulation crowdfunding. Um, The technical term, what I learned from them was they call it capital formation. Um, And so typically how it would work is if you wanted investment, you need to actually know an investor and get in front of that person, plead your case to get financing. Um, So you had to not only have the social access to the investors, um, which for all sorts of systemic reasons is impossible um, for many people. And secondarily, you need to have the geographical access as well, um, which, again, um, is is often quite challenging if you're living in rural Montana. How are you going to get to San Francisco um, (laughs) and meet with an investor? And then even if you did, would they want to fund a $100,000 solar project? Um, And so the power of regulation crowdfunding is that it actually allows people um, to, to post their project and you know, gain the attention of the millions of people marching in the streets for social and environmental justice. Um, you, you know, areas like we've been talking to, uh, two different Native American nations, um, that pay extremely high power costs and yet still st- struggle to get financing. Um, and even if they do get financing, there's kind of, I think, a, um, you know, a, a knowledge equity piece where, you know, there's been such successful efforts with green collar jobs of solar training. Um, and you know, millions, you, you see still, there's way more jobs in solar installers than, than coal miners, et cetera, whatever the political line is. Um, but you know, what do you do when someone's been a solar installer for five or 10 years? I mean, that's not necessarily a pathway to build, uh, to really build wealth and to to gain local control of your economic development. And you actually have to, at some point, transition to being a developer so that you can actually determine how your community grows. Um, So, you know, even as interest for clean energy impact investments are rising, you know, entrepreneurs seeking kind of their energy independence for their communities lack adequate support to get their projects built funded and sustained and the truth is if we don't solve our equity issues we can't solve our climate issues. right even even if we somehow create a zero carbon world you know if you don't adjust some of the fundamental you know revenue streams ownership equity structures and allow for these you know local ownership, local capital formation, you know, society won't be stable enough to maintain any of the sustainable solutions that were actually implemented. And so not only do we kind of, you know, preferentially look for for groups like this, and and many of of these folks have approached us in our pipeline, we're looking for more. Um, But we also have a zero interest loan program uh, for Black, Indigenous, and people of color um, to pay for kind of some of the startup costs. Uh, that are associated with creating a solar project. So, you know, if you or someone you know uh, would be interested in, in, you know, applying for that loan, to come, you know, there's information on RaiseGreen.com about how to how to make that happen for them.
1: Yeah, that's that was the next thing I, w- I was going to get into because uh, a very interesting aspect. You're not just asking people to connect with developers and invest invest in projects. Um, you're actually supporting the development of projects, which is fascinating. Uh, there's one There's one more quote from that Cheddar article. Uh, so far, 50 people have reached out to Raise Green organically about getting help starting their solar projects. The goal is to bring on 10 projects before the end of 2020, 100 by the end of 2021, and eventually funnel thousands of projects per year through the platform, uh, which is great. And then if you go to your uh, Raise Green website, uh, and go to the accelerator program, Race Green Originator Accelerator, you have a kind of uh, six-week course here laid out. Um, so could you sort of walk through, uh, just talking through it, what you do to, 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 yeah, to help people go from an idea to becoming uh, a funded solar developer like this?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the accelerator program is a six week course that we've put together. Um, it connects people with like-minded creators and mentors to turn enthusiasts into entrepreneurs. Um, so we're planning for once a week, two hour sessions, um, and it reduces the resources needed to basically onboard new projects and, and fast track the crowdfunding process. And we do that by closely tracking with Uh, our new software, the Originator Engine. And we think this this kind of guided curriculum fills a gap in the current community-based solar landscape, um, which is that, you know, (laughs) in every city, there is at least one person who is working to try to get a solar array on some sort of community building, but doesn't know how. Many of the corporate structures and the financial models were closely held secrets of the largest law firms and financial institutions you know, in, in the world. And what we're doing is giving those tools to these enthusiasts. Um, so there is a one-time deposit of for this course, it's 500 bucks, um, but that actually gets credited later towards some of the costs that kind of are required to actually set up your, your company. Um, and then the project creators get an equity stake about 10% Uh, depending on the project. Um, And, you know, depending on where that geography is, that could be something like 20K a year um, if you actually max out the rates. So we really think of, you know, creating your own solar project as kind of the sustainable side hustle. Uh, It's a perfect part-time job uh, for, for one of the, you know, 25 million that are currently unemployed. Yeah. um if well, you think about it you
1: know oh go ahead uh just two quick things i'm curious just sure. a little bit more about what level people have to be at to enter that like yeah. uh because okay like, i mean i'll be frank i am not a good do-it-yourselfer <laughs> and i would probably be like oh, i can't do that yeah uh but i'm sure there there are different levels all different levels and i'm just curious yeah what level and uh, and also yeah just speak a little bit to that point um you know there's a lot of people unemployed and underemployed right now, huge equity challenges uh crisis um, how yeah, just a little bit a little bit more on that topic sure
2: yeah yeah, it's an experiment for us um, we you know the the first round is really for people who have a project, so they may be you know members of a, a religious congregation that wants solar. And is trying to figure out how to do it. Uh, it may be a, mo- a mother or father, stay-at-home father, who uh, you know is on the PTA and wants to get solar on a school. Um, it could be, you know, even a nonprofit that says, "Okay, we really want uh, solar, and and we we want to do it ourselves so we can um, <clears throat> reduce our costs even more." So it really uh, goes through kind of designing your project. So some of the basic things about, you know, what is a solar bid, what variables are on a solar bid and how do those interplay in a financial model? Um, It talks about the power purchase agreement process and how the solar bid and the geography determine the terms of the power purchase agreement and some of the kind of uh, more nuanced um, considerations there, as well as, renewable energy credits and tax equity, which are fundamental components still, even with the low cost of solar, are still critical to profitability. Then it talks about corporate structure and the type of securities options that are available to finance a project. And then finally, kind of putting together that story and securing all of the partners that you'll need for success. I think you hit on a key point, Zach, which is, you know, maybe you're not a developer, maybe you're not a technical person. Um, you know, people that, you know, buy real estate and flip real estate may not know how to build houses either. And so I go back to that analogy. Yeah. Right. I go back to that analogy because, you know, you really just need to know which partners you need at which parts of the process. Um, and, to see if you can align all those partners um, before you start your project so that it it has a higher chance for success if you have your installer selected and the bid ready to go. It has, you have a lawyer selected and you have an accountant and all that stuff is ready to go at the moment it lists. So that way investors can feel a little bit more reassured that you know even if you don't know how to build a solar array you've taken the time to find the partners that um, make it have a higher chance of success.
1: Yeah that's interesting I I was expecting a, a little bit more um, focus on technical side and well getting to that side um, since you mentioned uh, solar installers have been thinking about it um, you know there's there's tons, there's tens of thousands or, or more um, solar installers working for Sunrun, Tesla, Vivint, uh, which is now part of Sunrun, uh, different solar companies. It seems like, you know, there, there is the potential to say, hey, I want to be not just a solar installer working for Tesla or Sunrun, whatever, great job, fine, but I want to become a project developer for community solar projects. Uh, so this is sort of seems like a the kind of a, a great sort of course to move someone from that stage to another stage. Is that is that correct? Am I reading that correctly?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's 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 exactly the way we look at it too. Um the originator accelerator program, you know, which relies heavily on the new software that we call the originator engine right? Um, We co-developed this with IBM to actually allow people to make copies of successful community projects across the country. Right now, we have one template in there for one project in New Haven, but, you know, I'm calling all of the (laughs) Clean Technica folks, if you have examples of successful community projects, send them our way, we'll turn them into templates so that people could copy those projects and not have to reinvent the wheel. Ultimately, what the originator engine does is to teach the skills that help manifest true long-term economic empowerment instead of short-term and unpredictable jobs, right? How to create your own company, how to raise capital, how to comply with regulations. So it helps elevate people who may be in kind of green-collar, blue-collar jobs uh, into more administrative jobs. uh, that actually have a a wide variety of applicability. I mean, if you learn how to develop a solar project, it's not a far leap to develop a, you know, perhaps a housing co-op or Mm -hmm. a, you know, solar plus storage. Because, you know, if you learn how to navigate the permitting process, the capital formation process, and the compliance process, you can apply that to a large variety of local infrastructure. What's fascinating is although we've primarily, you know, we, we really have been looking at solar as our beachhead, you know, we've already had a variety of asset classes approach us, uh, people that were working to model their projects, you know, even right, right now, uh, you know, solar, solar plus storage, uh, heat pumps, energy efficiency, uh, electric vehicle charging, housing, urban farms. So a, a lot of these Asset classes, where you can actually have a somewhat predictable cash flow from a contract, um, you can apply towards really any type of infrastructure like water, housing, food, in addition to electricity. And so when you talk about the equity piece, fundamentally, if you lose your job in this country. You might not be able to fulfill your basic needs, and that's why people are talking about a homelessness crisis being the real pandemic of COVID. Um, so the question is, how can you make resilient local communities? You need local ownership and local control in such a way that the people who use the resources actually have access to them, have rights associated with with their access to them, um, and when you when you create your own project, you define what terms go in your legal document um, and as long as you disclose that to the crowd when you do your offering, then that's you can, you can basically fundamentally enshrine basic rights in into the operating agreement of a corporation I think it's really interesting that in the activist world and in general there's a lot of i think abhorrence almost to the idea of a corporation. And mm-hmm. we encounter this quite a bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm reading a wonderful new book uh, by Nicholas Lehman of the New Yorker called Transaction Man, where he talks about the, the beginning of corporations and, and how they were actually used um, <clears throat> in, the, <laughs> in the 30s and 40s. And what's fascinating is this is really the most powerful structure that's ever existed. And so if yeah. you can give community groups the same level of, you know, case law and legal rights associated with a corporation, um, then that can um, provide a lot of benefits that may be more difficult to access if they're using more alternative structures like nonprofits or or cooperatives that, you know, don't apply on a national basis. Even, even yeah. B corporations, right, are great, but. You know they don't apply in every state, so you can run into some challenges.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think it's an interesting problem we have in society where we sort of pigeonhole um, sectors, even like, there, and then sort of that determines who goes into them. I mean, we we have the problem in politics where people complain uh, politics is dirty, and so I don't want to want to be involved. But it's like, well, we need people who are not happy with dirty politics to go into politics to make them less dirty. We need, you know, you need people who are really passionate about, uh, about making, about just providing service for society to, to go in to, to to transform or to, to help that sector to be more about service for society. And same with business, you know, you need people to go into business who are not just going into, to to make as much money as possible off of the sweat of others, but who are going into it for, broader um values and, and reasons um i think we, we I, I feel like we get a bit of a rise in that but we need a lot more um and this is definitely it seems like a, a great perfect kind of avenue for it i like that you're so tied into the activist side of society because uh like you said you know there's just there's a kind of gap there that it needs to be sort of filled a lot more where you you show activists you know um show a lot of activists hey you know one of the most powerful ways you could transform things is by becoming an entrepreneur and uh, and doing doing this um, and so this specific topic you know we've we've been writing about d- democratizing energy for as probably as long as I've been on clean Technica uh, you know've i got, got some great leaders in that field like John Farrell of the Institute for local self-reliance um, and just the the idea of you know this is a kind of monumental opportunity like energy has been so centralized uh, power wealth of relating to energy and solar solar and renewables in general offer such an opportunity for democratizing and spreading the wealth and spreading the power uh all all kinds of power (laughs) uh so it's it's really inspiring to see what you're doing trying to help that along i feel like it's something that uh, it increasingly looks like it's getting squeezed out like you have the the cheap utility scale solar projects that anyone with a billion dollars now makes sense to, to go into that, you know, a bit, you've got rooftop solar being served by, you know, large corporations like Tesla Sunrun, Uh, but you just really have an opportunity for democratizing energy that uh, I think is underappreciated. So I like that you, that you frame it in that way a lot. Um, that you focus on that—that's basically what you guys are trying to do—is is bringing more democratization to the energy industry. Uh, I guess just as some final words, just maybe say a little bit more about democratizing energy.
2: Yeah, I, I I think you're spot on. I mean, I will say that you know over half the country is in an energy co-op, right? So I don't think I, I try to I try to make that point a lot because you know, not everyone is subscribing to the traditional utility model.
1: Yeah, I and forget that, being, being, in with, <laughs> being in Florida.
2: I <laughs>
1: yeah, but actually, I, yeah, anyway, keep going, sorry.
2: Oh, I was, I was going to say, I mean, look, what we're seeing with Hurricane Laura, again, battering the Gulf Coast with the California wildfires and PG&E, you know, utility shenanigans in, in California, yet again, um, is that, Centralized power is nice until there's a disaster and then you don't have power and it could take a week to get power back. And so ultimately distributed generation with storage, you know, will not be squashed by centralization. It's just fundamentally not as stable in an increasingly volatile world from climate change. The real question we have to ask ourselves is who owns the future? right? Because if we transition to a society of zero carbon, or, I mean, I don't even like saying zero carbon, I want negative, negative carbon, right? We got to make up the difference. Um, But if that's all owned by Apple, Amazon, you know, Google and Facebook, um, then what's, what's the point? We're still stuck in, in the situation we're at now where you have, you know, thanks to Jerome Powell, now steady inflation at 2% with wage growth that doesn't keep up with that. Um, So I think this question of who owns the future is a really interesting way to frame it. Because, like I said, it's really, it's really difficult for traditional financing to put up with the time and effort it takes to actually get a local 100 kilowatt solar project up. Um, and part of that is local politics. And, you know, a lot of people want to be, are looking to be a hero. They're looking to make a difference and they don't know how. I mean, if you put some sweat equity and get a solar project built and bring in 300 grand to your community um, with power reductions to match, um, then you become a neighborhood hero right and you know there's a lot of people who are looking for encore careers who are now unemployed and looking for what's next and you know we need hundreds of thousands of small scale renewable projects and at raise green we're giving the tools so that anyone can actually create them Um, or if you're not that dedicated you can actually support these efforts moving forward and profit from them in a different way Um, than the traditional stock market. Um, That is if the projects are successful, right? Like all these projects could fail, people could lose their money. And I think that's an important thing I do want to understate, which is a lot of the reason that community projects don't move forward is because like, if you're a homeless shelter, you don't have a Moody's credit rating. (laughs) So no credit rating, no solar. Um, And that breaking out of that paradigm um, is a challenge. We talk to institutional investors, we talk to big financial services companies, and the question that comes up every time by the most savvy folks is, what's the risk of the off taker? Um, and in some cases, the off taker risk is high. If if you're <laughs> if you're a community center <laughs> with a, a stream, you know shoestring budget that has been holding on for 30 years you know, a, a traditional, you know, private equity fund would say, we don't want to get near that. There's too much risk. But if you're in the community center going, <laughs> going to that community center and playing basketball or swimming or playing, playing bridge there, then you want to see it succeed and you're willing to put in a little more to, to make that project happen. And, and that's what we're betting on is, is uh, that people are, are actually going to be willing to put their money where their mouth is and invest in the world they know is possible and that they want to live in.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. I I love that phrase, who owns the future. I think that's going to end up being in the title. Um, Really great uh, way to put it. And I, I, I I think, I think, uh, I think we've gotten so far away from a kind of local community focus that people are, are really, trying to get back to it now. So there's, I think there's more potential now, like you said, a few years ago, maybe was more difficult in in some ways, but now uh, in so many regards, I think people long for that ability to, to be connected and invest in their community and see the rewards locally. And I think everyone's got, got a little bit of social media burnout and a little bit of like online burnout. Um, uh, but it's also similar to the media, the media situation you know, we, the media world has changed so much and there's such a reliance on Google ads and that kind of thing. Uh, but there's a, a really strong kind of push and trends now for people to support the media organizations that they really value and get something from to sort of, you know, keep them going and, you know, try to, uh, I, I think, put control a little bit more in the hands of the individual and, and the hands of the community um, and you know, sort of information-wise, we 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 work on that. And then on the local energy side of things, I feel like you're really offering that opportunity to be in control of your community a little more. You know, contribute and sort of see how everything ties together. And you, and if you can find you know enough champions, enough uh, to to create these projects and investors to believe in them, uh, could make an, an enormous um, impact on the world. So really excited about what you're doing. And I think, you know, we'll be, we should collaborate to, you know, to try to make this, to try to do our bit to, I think we we can contribute something to try to do our bit to help you guys uh, help the world um, really inspiring stuff. So thank you. Thank you, Zach. Uh, so any final last words or requests for any, any listeners or uh, yeah, a few, few final sentences, elevator pitch.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if you're, what do you do at the end of the March, right? Um, you can write your politician. You could write your congresswoman. You could write a corporate executive at Exxon. Um, but chances are none of them will do anything. Or if they do, it'll be too little, too late. So instead, why don't you come to Raise Green and create your own projects? It's a little too intimidating for you right now. With everything else going on in the world, you can invest in a project or even just subscribe to our newsletter and, and join our community of, of people who are, are tired of waiting and know, know what needs to get done uh, and want to figure out how.
1: Thank you so much, Matt. Really appreciate this conversation and, and what you're doing. Again, it's real inspiration. So hopefully we can help do our part to help you along too. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, check in next time to get your electric fix.
0: Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A C C O U N T S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. We'll be